0: Ooh, you guys have a tall pastor. This is wonderful. Well, we are honored and blessed to be able to fellowship with you guys. Um, I love visiting churches, so for me to come and see you guys and hear everyone worship has just been wonderful. Uh, Like Justin said, um, I, I come from South Denver. I'm one of the pastors on staff there. I am married We've been married for 11 years. We have three girls. We have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. The only guys in the house are me and male Siri on my phone. And so uh, my wife gives her love to everyone. She was going to come and visit, and Chris was so generous that I put him on the spot at the last second last week to come. And so thank you, Chris, for doing worship. Everyone, let's clap for Chris. I think that's appropriate. Thank you, Chris. All right. Well, I... I'm excited to do a Bible study. Are you guys ready to open God's Word? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. Also, my wife and I are church planters. We started Declaration Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, four years ago. God, in his sense of humor, said to pass the church off eight months ago. And the church is about four years old, and we visited the church two weeks ago again, and very exciting it's it's weird for me because it feels like i I would imagine it's going to feel like this Justin, you can attest to this uh when when you're going to eventually have to pass your daughter off to that future guy and that that feeling of like this is a good thing it's a good godly thing to do this but it still makes it very hard and difficult so visiting the church again was uh exciting because it, it it's growing it's moving forward And it's even more exciting because the church is doing really well even without my wife and I there. So it's very humbling. It's a humbling feeling. So, all right, you guys ready for a Bible study? Let's pray. God, we do come before you and we thank you that not only are you good in every way, Lord, but even through the storms, you're good. That every fiber and molecule in our body, when we want to freak out and throw our hands up and say we quit, Uh, Lord, you're you're there, you haven't forsaken us, you haven't left us, and you make the the declaration and the promise if we call out to you, you'll answer and you'll show us great and mighty things that we don't know about. And uh, Lord, I just pray as we're going to open up the scriptures, as we're going to discuss the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that this morning would not only encourage your people, but Lord, that you would speak through me and that you would be glorified through the reading of the word. We love you, and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. John chapter 11, we're going to do verses 37, and I'm going to do something a little untraditional. We're going to just kind of uh, jump from verse, not jump from verse to verse, but just start from the beginning, and then depending on time, uh, the goal is to finish <laughs> the next three chapters. Just kidding. No, we're going to go and to uh, verse... Ideally, we're going to try to go to verse 57. But for most of you that are familiar with John's Gospel, what are you guys going through on Sundays and Wednesdays? Are you going through any of the Gospels, Sean? I have, and Sean, thank you by the way for inviting me and bringing me here. I appreciate it. I should thank your pastor for inviting me to speak. Thank you, Sean. Um, I try to see where you guys are going through before I teach because I I, I spoke at in Boulder. And I spoke a passage that the pastor was supposed to speak on the following week. It was awful, but it wasn't. They were very gracious. But if you are familiar with John chapter 11, uh, the, I wanted to give you a little background to help you understand the context as we dive into it. Uh, there, there's two sisters that have a brother named Lazarus. Martha and Mary are devastated because their brother is sick, and they send a messenger to Jesus. And this messenger comes to Jesus and basically says, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. You see, Martha and Mary anticipated and expected that that Jesus wouldn't dawdle. Like, Lazarus is sick, Lord, come quickly. But then Jesus made an interesting comment and said, actually, Lazarus's sickness is not unto death. And instead of telling the disciples, but let's go quickly. The Bible says he waited two more days in Judea until he finally makes the commute to go see Lazarus. And by the time he reaches the sisters that sent the message, Lazarus had been dead already. And if you remember that passage, both sisters said the exact same thing to Jesus. And that was, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. They were frustrated. They had questions, where were you? We, we sent a message, you didn't come quickly. But then Jesus made that, that comment to Martha and said, your brother will rise again. And then he would eventually segue into saying, I am the resurrection and I am the life and if you believe in me though you die, you're going to live. Now this is important, what I'm about to say. Jesus could not have made that comment that he's the resurrection and the life if he merely healed Lazarus from a distance. And you also have to understand something, too. In John chapter 12, it's going to mark one week before Jesus' death on the cross. It's going to be Passover, and in Jesus' mind, he foresees that. He knows it's approaching, and to them, Lazarus is sick, but Jesus is going to do something far more uh, profound, and that's to, to demonstrate that he's the conqueror over death. That, yes, he could merely heal Lazarus from a, from a distance, But there's going to be a greater miracle taking place. And even though Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, you learn from John chapter 11 as he approached the tomb that he wept, that death still stung. And that's where we find ourselves in the text this morning. Jesus is at the tomb, and he's going to drop some miracles like they're hot. Verse 38. It says this in John chapter 11. Then Jesus again groaning in himself, he came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. First thing you're gonna to wanna to notice in that verse is the wording groaning in his spirit. The second time this has been used, uh, two verses behind, a couple verses behind, he approaches the tomb, he groaned in his spirit. In the Greek, it literally can be translated as he snorted like a horse. It's the idea that there was anger and indignation at the tomb, that that death had that effect even on Jesus, that in his spirit he groaned, it still hurt, but he's confronting death at the face of the tomb of Lazarus, and then he says something shocking. Look at verse 39, take away the stone. I mean, again, we're reading the scriptures. It's Sunday. Most of you want to say, verily, they'll the Lord, but come on. If you were at a funeral and it was not an open casket and someone in the back was like, open up the casket, it would be incredible. It would be offensive. It would be that appalling who invited crazy Uncle Carl kind of a thing. You know what I'm saying? And so for, for Jesus to say that, it is shocking, which is why Martha responds the way that she does in verse 39. Look what it says. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he's been dead for four days. If you have a King James translation in in your hands right now, I think it renders a better translation of what Martha says. Listen to this. Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) And and the reason why it is humorous, number one, because how how blunt she is, like, Lord, you're crazy. That boy stinks. But it's also funny because if you know John chapter 11, the previous conversation Martha had with Jesus, after Jesus made the comment, hey, Martha, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. If you believe me, though you die, you'll live. She's going to eventually say, especially after Jesus says your brother is going to rise again, she's going to say, yes, I know that my brother will rise again, but I also know Whatever you ask of God, he will give to you. That affirmation of, I recognize who you are, Jesus. She was the Christian that would be like, all things are possible with Jesus. If she had a camel and she was driving it, that bumper sticker in the back of the camel is Jesus is the way. She would be that gal. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, okay, so take away the stone. Yeah, about that. Um, Decomposition has taken effect. My bro is not smelling good in there. There There's a putrefying corpse that you are asking me to basically expose. And here's my point. It is easy for us at church to nod, to affirm to amen to what the pastor says at the pulpit and to make that same proclamation. All things are possible with Jesus, but it's, it's in the moment that when you leave the building and Jesus wants to demonstrate the impossibilities of his power that we almost immediately forget the things we just said amen to on that Sunday or that time in the God's word that we were like, yes, that's what I needed. Same thing, whatever you ask God, I know Jesus, whatever you ask, God's gonna give to you. And then so Martha's called out, okay, so then take away the stone. But it stinks. And it's oftentimes in our life, for some of you in your time of marriage, for some of you in your time of singleness, It's in those moments when Jesus wants to demonstrate the impossibilities of his power, and he asks almost the same question that he asks Martha, and that is, take away the stone. Let me have access to everything. Let me see everything, all the issues, and like Martha, what will we say? Oh, but it stinks in there. And the reason why we don't want Jesus to fully have access to our hearts, even though we sing songs about it, we read books about it, we talk about it with one another, you wanna know why we don't want that? because we know it smells in there. And for some of you, you've been storing stuff in there that you are ashamed of. You are straight up not even wanting to think about, much less talk about. And it's like what the psalmist declared, where we too can say the same thing, search and know my heart, Lord, find any fault within, within me. It's almost that proclamation to the Lord Take away the stone, Lord. You have full access to search for anything that is hurting you and in turn hurting me, and I want you to remove it. Take away the stone, but it stinks. Look at what Jesus says to her, verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Did I not say I'm a parent. I have three girls. That's like the reoccurring thing that we say in our house. Parents, you know what I'm saying. Did I not, did I not just tell you this? I have a two-year-old, and we're in the transition-ish stage of uh, potty training, and I feel like that's the reoccurring thing. Did I not say to not put your hand in your diaper and show me when you've pooped, honey? Please, did I not say? That's the struggle in the Geraci household right now. But what is Jesus referring to when he makes the comment, did I not say, Martha? Look at verse 25 and 26 of John chapter 11. Later that day, earlier that day, I should say, this is the conversation they had. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks Martha straight in the face and then he asks, Do you believe this? And she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. That's the reference that Jesus is making. He's confronting her on that conversation they just had earlier that day. Did I not just talk to you about this, Martha? That, Martha, if, if you believe, if you believe, you're gonna see the glory of God. Question, though, does Jesus need the faith of Martha and Mary and the funeral attendees in order to perform to demonstrate the miracle. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't need it. Jesus is fully capable of doing the miracle with or without Martha and Mary, but this is where I think this is where I think Christians miss out the most on. Listen to what I'm about to say. You and I, we collectively, we will see as much as we allow Jesus to show. Let me me explain. That your faith, my faith, our faith is going to determine the amount of God's power that we're able to see demonstrated in our own life. Because listen carefully, folks, the, the issue isn't whether or not Jesus has power to demonstrate. He has unlimited power. You realize the Bible says in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, this proclamation of In the beginning the world began, it appeared at his command. He spoke you into existence. So there's no denying the power that Jesus can demonstrate. The issue is whether or not we will take the steps in order to see that power in our own life. Did you guys hear what I just said? Because that's the very thing that Martha's confronted on. Martha, did did I not just tell you that if you believe in me, you would see the glory of God? He doesn't need our faith to show that power, guys, and his true deity, but don't you want to see it, though? Don't you want to just not talk about it and just sing about it? Don't you long for those days when you can look back when you first became that Christian, and it was so sweet, and you heard from the Lord, and you were in that quiet place, and you opened up the word, and God was revealing himself to you. We talk about God's power sometimes in church as though it were only a concept, but ladies and gentlemen, what if we lived as though it were a reality? Seriously, what if we lived as if the same spirit that allowed Peter to walk on water, who gave Paul the words to exhort the churches that he planted and wrote to, the same spirit that gave Joshua the authority to tell the sun to stand still, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead? What if we lived as if that same spirit was accessible to us today? And we didn't even have to access it within the church. I I think, call me crazy, we would be unstoppable. We would, I mean, think about it. When Jesus died on the cross, he comes back, blows away the disciples. The disciples think we're gonna establish the earthly kingdom. And Jesus is like, actually, I'm I'm gonna leave you with a helper. And by the way, this helper is not just any ordinary helper. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And by the way, guys, you're going to be witnesses for me all across the earth in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria. If we lived as if we could at any moment access that same Holy Spirit, guys, we would be unstoppable. We would be unstoppable. So now the question remains this. So then what is in your life that is hindering you from accessing this unlimited power. Because here's Martha being confronted. Martha, you're going to see this power, and you're going to see the glory of God revealed, but you have to believe. And ladies, I'm the first person to say it. I feel like pastors, pastors never struggle with this. No, I'm an impatient human being. I want to see the end result. I want to know why things are happening the way that they are going to happen. And I know the same thing for you guys. We, it's that moment of like, I, I just need to know if we're going to make it. I need to know if we're going to financially make it, if we're going to have enough money. If, for some of you, it's like, if I'm going to find that husband, if I'm going to find that wife. And we think knowing the outcome is going to help us become better equipped, more empowered and faithful Christians. And, and it's wrong. That's, that's the complete opposite of what faith is. And I, and I think, yes, we would all be happy to see the end result, but it's in those moments, ladies and gentlemen, it's in those moments when life is incredibly difficult, when we see the glory of God revealed in ways that we never thought. Again, I'm a church planter. And for anyone that's been a part of a church plant or started a church plant or any of that, you, it, I, I feel like we, they should write a book on the glamour of church planting, it's a lie. (laughs) It's the most difficult thing you will go through. And there were times in the church plant when it was like, you know what, it would seriously be easier just to give up, to quit. And I feel like it was in those moments, the countless times when, guys, there was that temptation to give up that I felt like personalizing even with this text that Jesus said the same thing, and attach your name to it. He's, he's talking to Martha, but attach your name. John, did I not say that if you would believe in me, you would see the glory of God revealed? And maybe some of you in here are ready to throw in the towel and give up on your marriage, on your purity, on the way you just, you're, that sensibility of just saying, I'm, I'm going to be aware of your presence, Lord, and and be sensitive and do what you say. And you're like, I don't even care anymore. What's the point? Don't allow the stone in your life to block the stench that God wants to remove from your heart. And I hope this is the most giveaway, big takeaway you can get from this morning. And that is this, ladies and gentlemen, you are never too far to see the glory of God revealed. Did you hear what I said? You are never too far to have the stone removed it's never too late. And so here's Jesus. I'm confronting you, Martha. Take away the stone. Are you going to believe in this? So what does she do? What, what, what do they do collectively? Look at verse 41. They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Now again, th- this is a huge step of faith to a very unusual request. And I'm, I'm a guy, when I read the Bible, I imagine it and, I, and I, think that's, I, I think as they were removing the stone, they were like, okay. And they're looking at Jesus like, okay, so what is he going to do in response to this very unusual request? What's the point of this exercise? And Jesus, he explains it. Why did he remove the stone? Look at verse 41 and 42. It's in his prayer. He lifted his eyes up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now call me crazy, this is a Bible study, so we're going to look at some corresponding scriptures. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 20 really quick, really quick. If you were to encapsulate why the book of John, why the gospel Was written why Jesus is about to perform this miracle, or even for that matter, any of the miracles that He performed. It's written right here. It gives the the giveaway of why it was written. John chapter twenty, verse thirty and thirty-one. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written. Why was this written? Why was the miracle taking place? That you may believe. And ladies and gentlemen, it's not just simply to believe because look what the rest of the verse says. And that, that, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Take away the stone. Why? Why though? Because to them, to Martha, Mary, Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead, but what Jesus is about to demonstrate that not only does he have power over death, but he wants to, in this moment, show them that not only is he from God and believe that he's from God, but by believing that he's from God, they would have life. And another thing you should notice in the text is, Jesus, that confidence he had. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know you always hear me. And that, that prayer just, it's inspiring it's inspiring. Have you guys ever seen someone's relationship with the Lord? And it just, it moved you. I mean, you, you saw their life in it. They weren't just the Sunday Christians, man. They served the Lord with their life. And you, and you would think, gosh, they have something that I want. They're passionate about Jesus. Their faith challenges you. And not only that, but their love for Christ, it's infectious. You want to be around that person because they love the Lord so much. And I feel like when Jesus is praying that prayer, he's praying because he knows the Father is listening to him. Lord, I know you can hear me. That prayer, like us, we want want that prayer too, like the psalmist declared in Psalm 10, 17. Oh, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Oh, I just, I love that. And so here's Jesus with that confidence, that prayer. He prays that prayer right after he asks them to take away the stone, which brings up this question. Why did Jesus ask them to take away the stone? If Jesus has this resurrection power that I'm talking about, and we're about to hear him say in a second, Lazarus, come forth. Couldn't Jesus have just like looked at the stone and said something like, not today, stone, and it just blows up and stuff, and everyone's clapping, like, this is the greatest funeral ever! He could have done it. He could have done it. Do you remember the story when Jesus, he's uh the story of him cursing the fig tree? He's returning to Jerusalem, and the Bible says he was, he became very hungry. But do you guys know what hanger pains are? You know hanger pains? When you're just so hungry, you're just you're almost angry and Jesus he's almost at this point where he you know he's so hungry and he sees that that fig tree and it's it's smothered with leaves there is a cluster of leaves on there which should have been an indication of what man there should have been figs on there and so here's Jesus approaching the fig tree and there's not one fig on it and the bible says that Jesus looked at it and said may no fruit ever come from you again <laughs> and i don't think he said it passively I don't think meek and mild Jesus was like, may no fruit ever come from you again. I think he looked at it, he's like, no fruit's ever going to come from you again. And the disciples are like, Jesus, cool, let's just go find another fig tree. No, it's a phony. And the Bible says he cursed the fig tree that it would never bear fruit again. And the Bible says at that point, the tree withered at once. At once. Here's my point. Couldn't Jesus have done the same thing with the rock that was covering Lazarus? You know, you shall never cover a corpse again, and then it blows up. It could happen. I'm going to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. It says it in John 20. We just read it. Many things were done in the Bible that were not written. Maybe there was that side point where Jesus was like, maybe, no, I'm just kidding. When Jesus, when he was coming down from the Mount of Olives, the people were worshiping, they're shouting, blessed is the king uh, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and and glory uh, in the highest. And the Pharisees are watching this public display of worship take place. And they thought the audacity that Jesus would allow this to happen. And they look at Jesus and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because they were worshiping him. And then Jesus says, I tell you that if these keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And if Jesus can make stones cry out to him, Jesus can command stones to explode for him. (laughs) But I want you to notice in John chapter 11, he doesn't do that. He involves the people. Which brings me back to my original question, why though? Why not just have Jesus send a legion of angels to take care of the whole thing? I'm gonna tell you a very important thing, guys, because only God can raise the dead and only man can remove the stone. In the same way, listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus calls every man and woman in here to be fisher of men. You catch the fish but it's Jesus who has to clean the fish. Did you hear what I just said? You are the ones that become that light bearing, shining light to show them the truth of the gospel but it's only by the power of Jesus who can remove that sin from their life and that's not your job, ladies and gentlemen and that's the evangelical church's feeling sometimes that that's our response i got to make sure they're not sleeping around with their girlfriend i got to make sure that they're stop getting drunk all the time and pot and make sure that they're not you know we feel like it's our responsibility but ladies and gentlemen you are called to catch the fish let jesus clean the fish jesus wanted them to understand that he's the one who has to raise the dead but they can remove the stone and you know what that also tells me it tells me he wants you to participate in the miracle He wants each of us to be a part of it. But it first requires that they had to take away the stone. And if that's not shocking enough to hear Jesus say, take away the stone, look what he says in verse 43. All right, Jesus, we took away the stone. And then he said these things, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, guys, I've seen some crazy things at funerals. At my grandfather's funeral, My aunt came, plastered. She had no idea how to cope with the death of her father, and she came completely plastered. Funerals have an effect on people that go one or two ways. And again, I don't need to go through it. I mean, you've seen it. You've seen people angry, crying uncontrollably, bitter. Uh, Or some of you, you hear the eulogy given and, and the testimony and life and legacy of that person, you, you find out things about that person you never knew about. They're powerful moments that take place at funerals. And for Jewish customs, you have to understand something. It wasn't like a traditional funeral where you come, we, we do the service, we bury, or in, in, you know, depending on the funeral process of what you do, the idea is it's just a one-day service. This, Judaism was a one-week process for the funeral. And so you can imagine all these people are going through this coping time, and it's, and it's hard. Jesus just told them to take away the stone, but then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And I want you to think about that. He spoke to a dead body as if it were alive. He's talking to Lazarus as though it were alive, and if it wasn't crazy enough to hear, take away the stone, but now it's like, yo, Lazarus, let's go. And it's weird. It's weird to think about. But for us... Who know the characteristics and deity of Christ, it's actually not weird. Romans declares in, four, in the fourth chapter and 17th verse, He who gives life to the dead, he calls into existence the things that don't exist. For Jesus to say, Lazarus, come forth, it's actually not shocking. But stop right there for a second. Back then, they didn't embalm the individual like what some of us go through today. Someone dies, you quickly have to begin the burial process. They would wrap each individual appendage on their body. They'd put them in the tomb depending on the amount of money they had in order to, I mean, if they couldn't afford the tomb, then of course, okay, we got to begin this even faster. And then they would bring spices to the tomb to attempt to mask the smell of the death and what the stench brings. And it was only good for a couple of days because that stench of the corpse the corpse had to have such a potent reek to it that all the Febreze in the world couldn't cover it. And so you have to imagine why they're saying what they've been saying. It stinks in there, I don't know. And for Jesus to say, Lazarus, come forth, must have been crazy, but look what happens next in verse 44. And he who died, he came out bound, hand and foot with grave cloth. His face was wrapped with a cloth, and then Jesus said to them, "Loose him and let him. Him go. Oh, Jesus backed up every word that he said. He's fighting death, he's confronting it. I'm the resurrection and I'm the life, Lazarus, come forth. And you guys have to understand something that he's doing this to demonstrate that not only does he have power over death, but death itself will be once and for all done and away with and conquered almost weeks from this point. And yet sometimes we walk, like we've been Christians for years, but we don't walk with confidence. And if you've given your life to Jesus, then walk with that assurance that you are no longer marked by condemnation, that you were lost, you were now, but you're now you're found, you were dead in your trespasses, but now you're alive in Christ. And that is an amazing promise that only Jesus could provide not by our good works or anything that we can do, but only Christ and Christ alone. And I want you to notice too in verse 44 that he tells them to loose him, let him go. He doesn't say, look at him, struggle. Someone videotape this. We're gonna put it on Instagram later. This is amazing. And in the same way, he wanted them to participate in the unwrapping of Lazarus. Let me give you, he wanted them just just as much to be involved it is so important for you guys to understand when it comes to ministry and the church and why it exists, that it's just not your pastor's job, Pastor Sean's job to make sure that every person that comes in here who becomes a believer, to disciple every single one of them, but he wants every person a part of this fellowship to participate in that. And let me be more specific. Those who become Christians Jesus wants you just as involved in the unwrapping process of helping them see, yeah, you used to act like this, but now that you're walking in Christ, this is what it means. You disciple them. You, go, you teach them through the word. And you know what, guys? We don't like that. You know why? Because people have messy lives. We don't. We get, oh, really? I mean, it's exciting. They're a Christian now, but now the next step is to teach them through what it means to walk in this new life being a part of the restoration, discipling them. I can't tell you how thankful I am. I grew up in the church, guys, but I didn't become a Christian until I was 15. And I am thankful for the people that God had put in my life to teach me what it means to walk in Christ. That's why we have passages of Scripture, what Paul told the church at Colossae, to put off all such things. He tells them to put off anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth, Don't lie to one another since you've put off the old man with its practices. And then he tells them, and now you've been clothed with the new man that's being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. Not only is it a privilege to be a part of the ministry, guys, it is an honor to be able to walk people through the stage of transitioning from death to life and watching Christ work in that person's life. It's exciting things. And look at the outcome of the miracle, verse 45. So then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did, they they believed in him. And here's Jesus. This is why he has not only the ability to turn people's life from grief to joy, brokenness to restoration, hate to love, unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ, he takes devastated people at a funeral and turns their grief into praise. But as many of you know, there's always a Debbie Downer to a group. Look at verse 46 through 48. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, "What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, then everyone's going to believe in him, and the Romans will t- will come and take away both our place and the nation." And, and, uh, It blows me. It really does blow me away. They witnessed this amazing miracle with their own lives. They watched a once putrefying, decayed body, a corpse, all of a sudden move about and have brand new flesh again. How is it that they don't believe it? I mean, they even admit in verse forty-seven. What are we going to do for this man? Works many signs. They can't even deny the miracle. You realize that? Yeah. There's Lazarus. He's across the street. He's eating a falafel and hummus right now. I mean, he was dead and there he is. I mean, this is, what are we gonna do? And you would think that these guys who were supposed pros of the law would have stopped and said, you know what, I think, I think Moses talked about this. You would think one of them would stop and just from Deuteronomy where Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. But instead they plotted against him. They even said, if we let him alone like this, everyone's going to believe him. (laughs) And I could just imagine Jesus like, that's exactly what I want. That's exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. And as Jesus, he's generating more and more followers. Here are the religious leaders who are fearing, not only is it going to like take away from them, but they're fearing it's the Roman government is going to take notice of it and regard it as a huge threat. That's why they specifically say in verse 48, the Romans are gonna come and take away both our place and the nation. But ladies and gentlemen, they are not referring to their actual physical home. Do you know what they're referring to? They're talking about the temple. They're ta- and I want you to think how sinister that is. They, the religious leaders, had made such an idol of the temple that they were willing to murder Jesus in order to preserve it. And this is where it gets even more insane. They, they thought the temple as their place. You, you're reading that? They're gonna take away our place as though it belonged to them and there is such a danger in that thinking, especially within church leaders. And guys, this is why we must never forget that the church belongs to Christ, not the pastor. The church is not defined by the building you meet in. It's defined by those who are meeting within the building. You are the church. You belong to Christ and you always have been. And here are the religious leaders. They are more concerned about the nation's current standing rather than the people standing with God. And may we never be that way. May we never be that way. May we we never be so fixated on policy and church government and board meetings and procedures that we forget the most important fundamental reason why the church exists, and that is to shine our light on a community of people that don't know Christ, and then to bring those people in collectively, and not just to become church, this Christian country club, but that now we're sending people out, and we're teaching them about this light. And in verse 49, it says, One of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, he said to them, now it just quick note, Caiaphas, he's brought into the picture, and you you have to know something concerning Caiaphas. He's like the supreme leader among all the other religious leaders. The, the, The office of the high priest, it was a lineage given, it was a hereditary lineage given down from Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, he was a part of the Levi tribe. And so here's Caiaphas, he's the one who's kind of overseen all of these guys, and he tells them in verse 49, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, and not only for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So you've got two basic parties here represented here in the text. You've got the chief priests, the Sadducees, and you've got the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees, they, weren't very, they, were, they were very liberal in their thinking. They didn't embrace Really, anything, unless it was the Old Testament, the first five books of, of Moses. They, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, and they certainly didn't believe in resurrections, which is why you can imagine they're so upset right now. They're confronted on the very thing that they believe into the core of their bone being problematic. And now you've got the Pharisees, and these guys aren't very political, they're strictly religious, r- r- snobby, pompous. Uh, they believe in the Torah but they were just, they were very legalistic. And this is where it gets complicated. You got these two groups of guys who do not work well together. They're always biting heads, and all of a sudden they find a commonality, listen, in Jesus, but to murder him. They find that place where they can say, there's something wrong, but we need to work together on this, even though we normally don't work together. What, What are we gonna do with Jesus? And that's why Caiaphas, he makes that comment that you don't, you don't know anything at all. In fact, the comment that he just made in those verses that I just read are both blasphemous, they were sinister. He's basically saying, you guys, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. It's simple. Either Jesus has to die or this nation is going to die. Either we kill him or oh, we're all gone. This place, the temple, our nation, our position, it's expedient that one man should die for the nation. And then verses 51 and 52, they're basically footnotes from John, the author of this book. But God takes Caiaphas's blasphemy, and he takes it and turns it into something prophetic. Because not only is Jesus gonna die for the nation's sake, he's going to die for the entire world. He's going to die that upon the, the cross at Golgotha, where his blood is shed, that sin is going to be paid for once and, in all, and for all, for everyone. So you, here it is. You've got the council. They've concluded, all right, he's got to be gone. And then verse 53 and from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. So here are the, the guys with real political power saying, all right, we're not talking about it anymore. We're going to do something. Verse 54 therefore, Jesus no longer walked. Openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness, a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his people. This is an area near Jerusalem, uh, close to Samaria. And, uh, and actually, we're, gonna, we're not going to finish the text there. I'm gonna, we're going to end it right there. But I'm, in conclusion, remember the point of the passage to, to, to the, the funeral attendees, they, just, they want to see Lazarus back. But to Jesus, he has to demonstrate something so profound, and that is I'm not going to just simply raise him from the dead so that you guys can believe I'm from God. I'm going to raise him from the dead so that you can see that I have power over death. I am from God, and by, that by believing, you might have life in my name. And I think there is something practical even for us as Christians in here. I, I, I believe it. I think there are some of you in here that you don't want to just talk about, sing songs about, read books about, this, the impossibilities of Jesus' power in your life. You want, you want it to be just as a part of it in this room as it is outside of this room. And I think for some of you, you're, you're kind of done just talking about it. You're ready to see something happen. And I think the, the practical message, which is clever and fun with the passage, is, well, then take away the stone. But what does that imply? It basically implies that not only do you have, allow Jesus to have full access to your heart, but you recognize there might be some problematic things in your life that you need Jesus to full-blown take out, which is both difficult, but it's going to be the best thing. And I'm gonna tell you the same thing Jesus told Martha that if you want to see the glory of God revealed, you have to believe in that. And if you can believe in your heart of hearts that being a Christian not only is difficult, but God has put men and women in our lives to help us bear that burden together, but God created you to not have to do it alone. You have each other, but it first requires you take away the stone. And Jesus like most of you in here can attest to, can take your dead-like self and bring you back to life. God is good, amen? amen? Let's pray. God, we do come before you and we thank you again for raising Lazarus from the dead, that, Lord, for myself included, that not only would you have access completely to my life and my heart and my thoughts, but, Lord, that I would reflect the gospel, not just on Sundays at a pulpit, but in my day-to-day life, the way I talk to my wife, the way I discipline and talk and raise up my children, the people you surround me with, Lord. And God, for those in here that not only might be struggling with things, but Lord, that they can just be real and say, I, I, I'm searching over my heart, Lord, find any fault within me. And Lord, that you would place men and women in their life to help them through that, that process. God, I thank you for this church and the work that you're doing within the community. I thank you for the youth center. You're going to be making the mark in this area that not only would the presence of Jesus be seen, but that men and women, children and youth can see that in Christ, that you are the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in you, though we die, we're going to live, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you were raised from the dead, that this is what will save us. And God, I do just pray for those in here who have never professed and have given their life to you, who have never said, I wanna serve Jesus, I wanna give him my life and I wanna confess that my sins have separated me from him. That if that is you today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, and with confidence you can't say that when I die I'm gonna be before him, but that in this moment, if you wanna surrender your life to Christ, you can. And if that is you, to repeat after me, Jesus, I believe you are Lord. I believe you died. I believe, believe you were raised from the dead. My sins have separated me from you. But I want to give you my life because you paid the price at the cross. I believe you rose from the grave and I want to serve you all the days of my life. I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for one last worship song this morning. And for those that if you prayed that prayer, oh my goodness, come and tell your pastor so we can celebrate with you. God bless you guys. Have a good Sunday.